welcome, welcome, welcome to the World History Podcast. I'm Mr. Hall. Today, we are going to be taking a look at some of the ways that people have begun to change their thinking uh, during the Industrial Revolution. So I'm going to focus today really on changes in economic thinking. You know, that's why I've titled, or titled this, this lesson, um, Industrialized Economics. Uh, so we're going to take a look at some of the ways that philosophers and economists started to think about how the economy is going to have to adjust to all the new changes. Now, there's a lot of things to think about here. So we're going to cover a bunch of different topics, but we're really not going to look just at economics. And that's what can be really difficult about this, this uh, part of our unit here is I'm not just, I know I'm speaking about economic theories, but these economic theories are an outcome not just in a change of manufacturing, not just in a change of purchasing habits, but they're a change in society and, and social fabric itself. So we're going to dive deep into some of these issues today. Um, we're going to talk about some, the, the four major reasons that historians kind of categorize these, these major changes. Um, we're going to take a look at some of the individuals who come up with these topics. So you can see there on the second slide in this presentation, I've got uh, some, some pictures of some individuals there. We're going to go down through every one of those names here by the time we're done. But uh, as always, I will play the tone as we're moving on to the next slide. Um, I am having I have the industrialized economics slide in front of me. Uh, I, I would recommend having it in front of you, but I don't know that it's necessarily um, required or needed for, for this lesson here. Uh, but without further ado, here we go. So I've now jumped down to slide number three there, um, titled Why the Changes? And so I want to take a look at why are changes in thinking happening? And, and this can be so difficult for, for uh, your age to really understand and grasp these kind of concepts. And the biggest reason is you're still trying to understand your ways of thinking for a first time, let alone to try to understand why people are thinking and the way, of that, and the way they're thinking is changing. You know, you're still trying to establish thought process number one, let alone transition into thought process number two. And I'm going to basically try to show you why humans had to transition their thought process. Yeah. Uh, and, and that can be really difficult. So again, if you guys ever have any questions about any of these things, please reach out to me. I'm going to get into some, some pretty uh, odd topics to talk about here in this, this lesson. Um, but a couple of things to keep in mind. Obviously, we're, go we're going through the Industrial Revolution and all the things we've talked about. We've got massive changes in population. We're, we're dealing with numbers of human beings that we have never, never ever imagined or conceived of before. Uh, we've got changes in healthcare. We've got changes in social interaction. Remember, people are moving from rural areas into urban areas. Uh, so we have all of these massive changes just in the way that people are living and close to each other. But we also have huge social changes going on. We can't forget this time period from 17, from like 1750s to the 1850s. We're talking about the American Revolution just happened. The French Revolution just happened. The English Civil War is less than 100 years old. The American Civil War is going on right around this same time period. Uh, we're, we're seeing huge, huge wealth inequalities all throughout Europe. So there are, there are just immense changes in everything, in every single aspect of life. It's causing complete and total chaos. You guys are living through a time very, very similar, mentally similar to that same time period where there is a lot of just social, 
political, economic, uh, sociological changes going on, that everything around you is changing almost, almost simultaneously. And we're, we're watching society trying to deal with that and trying to find where do we place ourselves in this, this greater world and, and economy and social structure that we're living in. So, you know, looking at why then are, if we can kind of summarize all these things that I've been talking about, um, all of these kinds of changes into four topics, um, these are the main four that I've been able to kind of put them into. First and foremost, obviously, massive changes in population. Just I can't express how large that is. We have changes in human interaction, meaning that we no longer have, you know, farmers helping farmers, no longer necessarily small town communities and churches and so on. No, people are living in cities. They are working, you know, the change in their workforce itself, the fact that you are now working in factories instead of working on farms, that is changing human interaction. It's changing the way that you're interacting even with coworkers or other people who live around you. You know, other changes in human interaction, interaction is how we can move goods and people much faster, farther locations. With the development of steamboats and of trains and other things, we're able to get people to other locations quicker. We're kind of shrinking this entire world that we live in because people are able to interact with each other better. We have the development of the telegraph, you know, the use of Morse code, that 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 you know, that kind of uh, communication. Again, it's shrinking the world. It's making us be able to communicate across entire continents in in a time span less than five minutes. You know, where trying to communicate across the continent would have taken a month just 50 years ago. We also, like I said, have changed massive changes in wealth division. We are seeing the rich get disgustingly richer and the poor getting even poorer. And I said before the Industrial Revolution that wealth inequality was you know, somewhere on the lines of about 10% of the population owning about 60% of the wealth. That meant about 90, 80 to 90% of the population had to divide up 40% of the economy amongst themselves. During the Industrial Revolution, we're moving to a point where we're sitting more where 10% of the population is starting to own closer to 75 to 80% of the wealth. Yeah, that's leaving less and less for the vast majority of the people, and especially considering that we're getting more people on this planet. Uh, it is lessening the amount of wealth that is in the average person's pocket. So I, I laid out just a few quick, simple changes. Like a simple, I've simplified them as much as I possibly can here. Um, I, obviously, there's many more things that I am able to go into detail in this course. But let's start to take a look at how, how do some people start to react to these changes in population? How... They're kind of asking the question, how does society keep moving forward um, and adjust to these changes that we're now dealing with? So now let's start to take a look at some of these economy situations. Um, I'm going to kind of take a look at this on, on a spectrum. And I'm going to start on the very uh, unregulated side of the spectrum. And between this podcast and the next lesson, uh, I'm going to work my way towards more regulation. Uh, and, and by more regulation, I mean more government regulation. Um, now, one thing we really have to understand about economics, and I get more into this, obviously, in eco uh, our economics course, um, which some of you will probably take next year. Uh, but the first thing you have to understand about economics is economics is not the study 
of money, okay? It's not the study of businesses. It, it, it is economics, the best way to really describe economics that I've kind of demonstrated over the last few years is economics is more a study of decisions and decision-making. And just the decisions that we are focusing on in economics is how to allocate resources, meaning, yes, how to spend money, what resources should go where, how do we make those decisions on what resources should go where, and those things. All right, so I want to really clear that up from the very beginning, that when I'm talking about economics, I'm not talking about how people make money. Uh, I'm talking about how we make decisions that then have an impact on how people make money. So there's goods and there's bads to all of these decisions, and I'm going to do my best to kind of demonstrate goods and bads on both sides. Um, so starting, like I said, on the, on the most unregulated end of this spectrum, one of these new types of economies that we start to see pop up here during this Industrial Revolution um, is, is a form of economics known as laissez-faire economics. Now, laissez-faire is, is Latin for hands-off. Uh, so it literally translates into hands-off. And, and basically, we're telling the government to have a hands-off approach to business. This is a concept where we allow the economy to really regulate itself, that, that the economy might have some form of natural laws that, we, that, that allows it to kind of balance itself out. Now, when I say natural laws, I'm talking about like, you know, like scientific kind of laws, you know, the law of gravity, those kinds of things. You know, if, if I drop a book, uh, you know what's going to happen. Every single time I let go of that book, it's going to fall. It's going to hit the ground. Um, so philosophers and economists started kind of trying to figure out and discover what are those what are those things in economics that might naturally always happen. So let's take a look at um, the most famous example of of a laissez-faire economist, and that is the father of laissez-faire economics himself, Adam Smith. Now Adam Smith. Uh, is most well-known for his book, The Wealth of Nations. You know, and this is one of those times where if you're in my classroom, I'd be waving this big, fat, massive book in front of you. Uh, it is huge with teeny tiny print. It is never anything anybody's going to want to actually read unless you're a diehard economist. Uh, but I always say The Wealth of Nations is essentially the Old Testament part of the Bible to our current economy. It is the book that lays the foundation for the entire economic system that the United States and many other Western um, capitalist democracies work off of today. Uh, now, what are some few foundations of Adam Smith's ideas? First and foremost, he argues that a free market, so this idea that the, the economy kind of regulates itself, is going to benefit every single person. He argues that that kind of economy is actually going to have better wealth distribution than anything else. And the reason that he argues this is that it's his basic laws of supply and demand, you know, that allow supply and demand to determine prices. And you guys understand this. When the supply of a product goes up, the price of it generally goes down. If the supply goes down, the price generally goes up. And same thing then with demand that when there's an increase in demand, the price goes up. When there's a decrease in demand, the price goes down. And so what the price ends up being in the economy itself, so the price that you and I would pay for a product, you know, like say a Snickers bar, that price of that Snickers bar then hits at that intersection between supply and demand. Depending on how much supply of Snickers bars there are, and how much demand for a Snickers bar there is, is going to determine that price. And where those two lines cross is what's going to determine it. 
So as, as we get better at producing things and we can increase supply, what's going to happen to products? What's going to happen to the price of all products? The prices are going to go down, meaning that they're more affordable and attainable for everybody. So Adam Smith argues that there's this eventual oversupply that we're going to get so good at producing products that they are going to be in such abundance that everything's going to be dirt cheap. Now, a lot of things that Adam Smith overlooks are really kind of monopolistic tendencies, meaning that he, he kind of overlooks these concepts where, where businesses will uh, unnaturally hold prices higher uh, than what the economy would probably allow for, so that, that certain goods are in fact kept out of reach of people um, just because they've either limited the supply um, or they've set the price at a different location than what it naturally would have occurred at uh, under Adam Smith's laissez-faire theories. Um, now, supporters highlight Adam Smith and the wealth of nations in this laissez-faire economics because during the industrial age, there wasn't really in, there wasn't really any intervention in, in the industrializing economy. You know, we're seeing this today. You guys are living through this today with the government and social media networks and the internet. The internet has never been regulated yet. Uh, we haven't known how to regulate it. It's such a new thing, and it's, and it's been such a booming economy. Uh, it's, it, a lot of people argue that it's been so booming because it's been unregulated. Well, that's not necessarily true. You know, yes, it's been unregulated, and it's been booming. Those, those two things did happen simultaneously, um, but they, they're not necessarily a causality. You know, one doesn't have to exist without or because of the other. Um, but the fact that they do happen together and the government played very little part in this industrial revolution, supporters of Adam Smith's theory are going to point right at this theory and say, see, that's why it's perfect. The next form of economics that I want to talk about, and we're, we're not really moving anywhere on this spectrum that I spoke of yet, um, but it's just kind of a different way of thinking here about a, a still unregulated form of economy. And this is what we called mercantilist economics. Uh, now, one thing to just let you know, mercantilist economics have, have really kind of almost disappeared in practice. Um, there are certain people out there who, who might have a form of a mercantilist view. Um, I, I would actually point to Donald Trump as an example of this, and some of his economic advisors that he, have, that he had um, were, they, they had mercantilist tendencies in the way that they viewed the global economy. Um, but mercantilist economics has, has in large part been either, either disproven or the fears were kind of overblown. Um, but these fears at this point in time are very rational fears when we start to take a look at all the changes going on around the world. And so what is mercantilist economics? Well, first and foremost, the, the first theory uh, that you have to understand about mercantilist economics is that there is a very limited amount of resources in the world. And, and, and so the theory behind this is that you can never increase the amount of resources. Now, that is true. And, and Adam Smith and laissez-faire economics um, in The Wealth of Nations does acknowledge that obviously there's a limited amount of resources. But Adam Smith also argued that we can constantly increase our ability to produce more resources. Um, so th they're limited at this moment but in the future, we can will be able to produce more, and and you know in the future they'll still be limited, but that limit will be higher. Mercantilist economics really kind of take this theory or this view that the the supply can never really increase; that it's always almost a set limitation, uh, and that 
because of this very hard limitation, all nations, all people are competing with one another to get these very, very, very limited resources. And so then we have to ask the question, how do you deal with the changes in population, the changes in, um, in, in, in consumer spending and the changes in production? How do you then combine those with this mercantilist view of such limited, limited resources? Uh, so there's, there's two main characters that I'm going to talk to you about and their theories about this. And, and um, so again, they're not necessarily arguing against Adam Smith. They're, they're arguing Adam Smith is right to a point and then changing from there. And these two individuals are Thomas Malthus and David Ricardo. So let's start with Malthus. So to put into perspective a little bit more here, uh, where Thomas Malthus and Ricardo and, and their, their uh, thinking is aligning here, uh, and to really show you that this kind of uh, uh, theories and philosophies come out of more than just money and business. Um, Malthus and Ricardo are living in a time period and are actually supporters of what is the, the, you know, the early parts of what's going to become known as the eugenics movement. Now, the eugenics movement is almost you know, 50, 75 years after Thomas Malthus. Um, but what we start to see is, is this survival of the fittest kind of mindset. You know, they're, they're dealing just after Charles Darwin and how Charles Darwin's theories are going to be warped and twisted to be put into economics. Um, Malthus and Ricardo are also really kind of a, a glass half empty kind of people, um, rather pessimistic views of the world. Uh, these are two individuals that come from the upper echelons in society uh, and really kind of look down upon anybody below them. Um, but to also kind of show you how they interact with other people, you know, like uh, I'm sure all of you are familiar with uh, Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. Uh, and, and you guys know that story, you know, uh, um, uh, Scrooge and the, and the three ghosts and so on. Well, uh, Dickens absolutely abhorred Malthus and Ricardo. Uh, the, the three of them did not get along. Uh, they, they actually openly attacked each other. They lived right at the exact same time and they openly attacked each other in their writings. Uh, and here's a fun fact for you. Scrooge is Malthus. Uh, Dickens actually used Thomas Malthus as his, his example of Scrooge. So, so when, whenever you hear that story, uh, it, it's actually Dickens kind of attacking him for these philosophies. Um, so I, just, I wanted to kind of put that into perspective for you because maybe that these kind of add to the ways that, that these guys are thinking about these things when they're combining all this into their economic theories. Um, so let's take a look at Malthus. Malthus first and foremost argued that eventually the population would outgrow the food source. Now again, Malthus isn't wrong. And that's the other thing about these, these economists. None of them are, they're all right until they're wrong. That's weird to say, because when we look at Malthus, and I told you guys before, before the agricultural revolution, we needed 90% of the population to farm and able to support themselves and the other 10% of the population. Uh, so when all of a sudden we have the population just booming like crazy, and you look at almost all of human history where it, it had such a limited supply of agricultural resources and we weren't able to necessarily improve our agricultural output for hundreds, thousands of years, Malthus is making sense here, that the population is going to be, is growing currently too fast for our historic food supply to be able to keep, to keep up with. And so Malthus argues then that 
because he, he believes the food source can't be increased, he argues that there's going to be checks on population growth then, that eventually that population growth is going to have to shrink back down. And he argues that there's three checks on that population growth. And, and these three checks are, are kind of intertwined within each other. And those are war, disease, and famine. So let's work backwards to those. Famine. Well, famine is just mass hunger. That makes sense. Well, if we can't feed everybody, then everybody's going to be starving and dying. Well, when you're starving, a couple of things happen to you. One, your immune system declines, so you're more susceptible to disease. Well, there you go. That's one of the high reasons how people are going to get massive diseases when they're starving. And, you know, you guys ever been so hangry you're willing to fight somebody? Eventually, wars can break out for these very limited resources, and agricultural resources are resources. Um, so between these three things, war, disease, and famine, Malthus argues that when the population gets too large, we're going to kill each other off so the population can come back within the food supply. And when we take a look at almost any other species on the planet, this makes sense. You know, if one of the reasons when we're, when we're taking a look at any kind of uh, animal within nature you know, we look at deer, the deer, local deer population. Uh, the local deer population can only get as large as its food source. Once its food source starts to run out, you're going to start to see deer starving and so on. And, and that population is going to fall back in within its kind of like a homeostasis, uh, homeostasis uh, setting or situation that there's that balance. Uh, so it kind of makes sense. You know, we as people should be following along that same path. You know, so he argues that the larger the population the larger the wealth inequality. That the you know, rich are going to get rich, the poor are going to get poor, but who are going to be the first to die in this war, disease, and famine? It's going to be the poor. So what's going to eventually happen is that living, the average living condition is going to keep improving, not because we're going to be getting more resources to more people, but because eventually the bottom part of the population that's pulling our average down is going to die off themselves from natural causes, and that is then going to bring the entire average up with it. So imagine if I just took every kid in my class who was failing and I just threw them out of my class and I only focused on the kids who were passing. Now all of a sudden, my average for students would increase. It's that same concept just being applied to living conditions here, that eventually those people will die, they're out of here, the bottom's cut off, now, bing, bang, boom, average living conditions have increased. David Ricardo actually agrees entirely with Malthus. Ricardo builds on Malthus's opinions. And what Ricardo does is he more tries to look at it on a very individual economic standpoint, you know, so, so, so to the individual and how does this in practice play out. Now, Ricardo agrees and he argues that one of the biggest problems with the population is that actually the poor are having too many children. Uh, that they're having more children than the rich. And, and guys, that's, that's actually a sociological fact. That, that generally happens that way. Um, and, and it has throughout all of society that the rich tend to have less children um, and the poor tend to have more children. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, be it you know, access to, to, to birth control, access to, to family planning, access to education about birth control and family planning, uh, and all of those things. You know, the, the rich knew about the concept of coitus interruptus, and uh, the poor did not. Uh, if you don't know what that means, uh, look it up. But David Ricardo builds on Malthus's concept by applying it to the family itself. And he develops this theory known as the iron law of wages. Now, in his theory, it's, it's kind of this, this feedback loop that will eventually happen. It'll just keep rolling on itself. 
that as wages get higher, he argues people are going to have more children. You know, that they'll be able to feed more children and they'll produce more children and so on. That will increase the labor force. You know, more children means more labor. Labor's a resource. Okay, so what happens when we increase the supply of a resource? The price of it goes down. In this example, price would be paychecks. So when you have more labor, the wage is lower. The population gets poorer. As the population gets poorer, they're going to die off. They can't afford food. As they die off, the wages go back up because labor's gone down. As wages go up, people have more children. And again, we've fallen right back into this feedback loop over and over and over again. So, to wrap up Ricardo and Malthus, to take a look at these two in a whole. Now, both of them, again, were right if we look at these old understandings of how uh, resources worked and how limited they were. Uh, when we take a look at the fact that, that food supply had not increased, that we were not able to produce or increase our output as much. The only way to produce more was to have more people to be able to farm more area. Uh, we weren't able to get more output in a smaller location. All of those things make sense then when we take a look at Malthus and Ricardo. They're, they're working off of limited information. What they don't realize is just how much of an impact the agricultural revolution had, how much of an impact the industrial revolution is going to have in our ability to mass produce goods and, and to constantly adapt and develop more, more goods, be them, um, be them manufactured goods or be them agricultural goods. You know, we as human beings have done a fantastic job as our population grows at also finding those resources we need for the larger populations. Uh, and, and Malthus and Ricardo really, really, really overlooked those two parts there. So because of that, again, they're not wrong. They were right given all of the facts that they had. Uh, they were just, they, they were proven wrong eventually as we kind of learned to do better. You know, the, I like to look at Malthus and Ricardo as kind of pointing out the problems that we had to overcome, pointing out the issues that we needed to learn about. Uh, then I, I don't like to just point at Ricardo and Malthus and say they're wrong, they're, they're bigots, and then they, they shouldn't be studied. No, they should be because if it wasn't for their, their concepts that they came up with, I mean, who's to say we might not have figured out how to, how to jump over those hurdles that they pointed out? All right, that's all that I have here for, for this piece. Uh, in the next session, uh, we are going to take a look at what is known as utilitarianism, utopianism, socialism, and communism. We're going to get a lot of isms. Um, so we're going to be working our way along that spectrum of government intervention in the economy. Uh, and, and so I, I started way on the end of, of you know, government hands-off. In all of these examples, it's government hands-off. Just kind of let it play out. Ricardo, Malthus, and Smith just kind of laid out how the economy would play out that way and how it would have an impact on our lives. All right, so we'll, we'll work through more of those here in the next session. Uh, there are questions attached to this. Make sure you answer those questions uh, and keep a lookout for the next podcast later this week. Um, other than that, everybody, have a great day. Keep your name out of the paper, except for doing good deeds. <laughs>